Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Years ago, a number of years ago, I used to live in Birmingham. I worked for a housing association and we used to run like a drop-in centre for people who had been uh, homeless and then uh, we, we had some relationship with, so they would come and they would keep hanging out with us. And I became, uh, I used to work at this place, so I became uh, friends with one of the guys that would come on uh, fairly regularly to this drop-in guy. And he, he wasn't homeless anymore, but he was proper lonely, so he would just keep coming along to, to be with people and to get a free cup of tea and eat all the biscuits he could. And as I got to know him, he began to slowly tell me his life story. And uh, he told me that a number of years before this, he had had a friend, a lady friend. And I think, he, I think he'd fallen in love with this lady, but I don't think she reciprocated to him. Uh, and they were friends. Uh, and as they became friends, she borrowed money off him and she kept borrowing just little bits of money and never quite managed to pay it back. But he was a relatively kind-hearted, quite simple person, and he would just keep lending her money. And she kept borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And eventually, she had about £10,000 of his money. Okay? These were not well-off people. And she managed to get this money out of him. And then one day, she just disappeared. She just went. He knew that she was alive and well, but she just cut him off entirely and disappeared with all of his money, or that £10,000. And he was distraught about this, as you would be. He was utterly distraught. And when I met him, it was a number of years after this had happened. So a lot of time had passed, but he was still distraught. It still kind of owned him and captivated him in a way. It was actually all he could really talk about. So he would walk in, I'd go, hey man, how's it going? How's your week? And he'd be like, yeah, my week was okay, but I still think about this woman who took my money. And it was years, and he just, it was the first thing in his mind. And he wasn't really able to do joy or happiness or contentment on any level. He wasn't really able to direct his life at anything in particular, like the concept of getting a job or maybe uh, moving to a different place or kind of beginning to change his life was impossible for him because this kind of filled his vision. It was all he could talk about. And really, it had ruined him. He had really actually ruined his life. I couldn't, as we talked, ever quite see a way for him to get through this. She was never, ever going to come back. That, in his mind, was the answer to all of these problems. She would come back, but she was never going to do it. Now, at the time when I worked there, I was pretty young, uh, and uh, I knew very little about anything, really, frankly. And uh, I started beginning to talk to him about bitterness and forgiveness. And I pointed out to him I tried to do it quite gently. Look, I don't think she's ever coming back. Perhaps now is the time to think about how to move move on from this. And he just couldn't do it. He just, there was no way he could process it. And actually, as I reflect on it years later, I think I failed him in many ways. I failed him because I didn't talk to him about justice, really. I didn't talk to him about, actually, you've been You've been wronged. This is awful. What can we, is there anything that we can do to set this right? Anything that you can do to set this right? And in reality, there was probably absolutely nothing he could do about it. But in that moment, I didn't talk to him about the mercy of God, the mercy of God for him. 
not for her. So when I was talking about forgiveness, I was saying you need to forgive her, which is the mercy of God for her, right? But not for him. Also in it, I, I didn't really get him to tell his story. And sometimes when we deal with this sort of uh, difficulty, delving deep into the story over a long period of time actually is the way that this stuff perhaps can be dealt with. If you look in uh, South Africa, uh, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu ran the truth and reconciliation kind of process after apartheid. His big thing was we need to tell the stories and that takes a long time. And so that storytelling of what had happened to him and the pain that he felt, I don't think I ever really helped him to do that. And I failed really to talk about the difficulty of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very easy thing to say. I would just, especially for me, because it's not my money, it's not my hurt, oh, you, you probably need to forgive her, which is true, right? Is it very difficult? Yo, yes, very, very difficult. And I failed to talk to him really about Jesus, particularly. Particularly, you think about Jesus on the cross forgiving people who'd hung him in agony and were killing him. They were his murderers, and yet he talked forgiveness. And forgiveness, actually, in its really its basic form, is really very, very simple. You know, devastatingly simple, actually, but incredibly complex all at the same time. Very difficult to walk through. So just for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to talk about forgiveness, what we're going to do. And I think forgiveness is perhaps one of the most important parts of what it is to be a believer, is to be a Christian, someone who says, I I follow Jesus, then forgiveness is just uh, a vital part of that. Because we receive the forgiveness of God, that's how you become a follower of Jesus, but then you become someone who gives forgiveness as well. You become a forgiver. You are forgiven and you forgive people. And forgiveness actually is one of the driving factors that makes church communities actually work and have any meaningful dynamic and any sense of being able to impact the world around it or to build something. Actually, forgiveness is at the very heart of it. And Jesus actually said to Peter, when Peter asked him, uh, you know, if my brother uh, causes me pain, and he was talking about like someone in church, one of this community, if they cause me pain, how often should I forgive them? Uh, Should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus was like, not seven, 77. And he wasn't saying, just tick him off, and when he gets to 78, you're done with him. It was like, this is an infinite, ongoing, lifelong kind of way of being. Forgiveness is a fundamental. And forgiveness also, I think, is pretty misunderstood. If we're honest, it can become quite glib. So people might say, well, just forgive and forget, and then throw a few random pieces of psalms at you. It actually doesn't really deal with justice and how we actually move through things and how we actually make peace with things that have happened to us or perhaps things that we've done. I think when I told that story of that guy at the beginning, actually, if I'm being honest, I don't think I really understood forgiveness. I don't think I really grasped it. We often forget when we think about God's We think God of love, he lets us off everything, right? We are forgiven for everything. Brilliant, which is true. What's also true is he's a God of holiness. So he hates sin and he hates evil. And he's a God of justice as well. He wants to put those things right. So how does that fit in with forgiveness? Also, I don't think I'd quite grasped the deep emotional and psychological impact there is of being a victim of something and what that does to a person, especially over a long time. Also, that God is 
a God who loves to tell the truth about things and loves to tell the story of truth. Whereas us humans, sometimes we think, oh, forgive and forget, and then please, can we stop talking about it? Could we move on from this? Actually, I'm done with it now. I think you should just park it and move on. Actually, there's a story to be told, isn't there? And how does that fit with forgiveness as well? So I want us to start this very short three-week series on forgiveness by not quite talking about forgiveness. Okay, bear with me. Uh, I want us to to first take a step back and ask a deeper, perhaps uh, not more profound, but a profound question, which I hope will give us a bit of foundation for thinking about forgiveness. And it's a question, really, I should have asked my friends right at the beginning in that story. I should have got to this question because I think it would have been the beginning, perhaps, of something for him. I think it's a question that we should ask each other. And it's a sort of question we can be a bit shy and embarrassed about. And we can do it wrong as well. You can uh, make this quite a judgmental question. And it's not meant to be, Okay, This should be a a question to, to open us up so that we can talk and we can think and we can ponder. And the question is this. Where is God in your life? It's a very simple question. Where is God in your life? Beginning of the year, it's always good to think of the deep, profound questions, isn't it? Where is God in your life? And we're going to look at a story from Joshua, where God asks Israel, his people, to put him at the very centre of their lives and at the very centre of their community as well. And so the background to this, before we get to the the passage, it's worth knowing a few things about this book, about Joshua, uh, and this will help us. And I hope that as we work through this in the next few weeks, this question of where is God in your life will help us to really think about how do we forgive. I would suggest if God is on the edge and on the periphery, then forgiveness becomes a very human endeavour, which actually can be quite difficult and can trip us up. If God is at the very centre of our lives, then forgiveness is driven by something more eternal, uh, something beyond perhaps our ability to understand. So we're going to read Joshua. And Joshua was the new leader of Israel. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Joshua. It is a fascinating book to read. There is a lot of gore. It's one of those books you're like, wow, a lot of people just died. This This is a gory book. And he is the new leader of Israel, and he takes over from Moses. And Moses and Moses' generation had been freed from Egypt. They had been slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years in Egypt. The people of God were there, and God effectively busts them out of Egypt. And it's a very famous story, and they get out of Egypt, and God says, I've got you out of Egypt so you can be my people, you can worship me. And they, uh, then that's what they tried to do, uh, but they sinned. And they had 40 years of wandering in the desert. And their sin was they just didn't trust God. They kept wanting to go back to Egypt. They wanted the easy life to return. They forgot how awful slavery was and actually were like, you know what, I miss the simplicity of that life. I want to go back. And so God wouldn't let them into the promised lands, not even Moses. And then Joshua and his generation get to go into the promised lands. His generation all born in the desert. None of them remember Egypt. And yet they get to go into the promised land. And yet they still struggle to obey God. So the problems of the previous generation are theirs as well. They don't really trust God. They don't lean on him in the way that they want. So there's the famous story 
where they attack the city of Jericho. I'm sure you've heard the story of them attacking the city of Jericho. They pray and God says, look, what I want you to do is walk around the city seven times and then do a big shout at the ends uh, and then the walls will fall down and it's yours. You can take it. Uh, and he also said, but don't take any of their stuff, okay? Don't take any of their gold or anything like that. It, take nothing. Jericho is to be wiped away. They're sinful. We want them to go. Uh, and they did that. They walked around the city. Walls fell down. They wiped through. Uh, unfortunately, some of them were like, actually, you know what? We're going to take some of this treasure and money. Uh, effectively, in their hearts saying, we don't quite trust that God's going to provide for us like he said he would. So we're going to take this and, and we'll keep it for ourselves. Uh, and that frustrated God immensely. And then they went to take the next city, a city called Ai. Not Ai. AI. It's very simple. And they went to take this place. And, but they didn't consult God that time. They were just like, yeah, we're, we're killing it. We're doing great. Let's just sweep through and keep doing our thing. We know what we're doing now. And, but then they lost. They were defeated and they were distraught themselves. And it's at this point we find them coming before God. Okay? They've uh, realised actually they have sins. They've realised that they've been taking money and, and treasure where they weren't supposed to. They've realised they weren't consulting God and praying in the way that they were supposed to. And at this moment, God calls them. And he calls them to have him at the very centre of their lives the very centre of their, their people, their nation, not their own wisdom at the, the centre, not their own way of doing things, not their own ability to provide for, them, for each other or for themselves, but actually him at the centre. So we get to chapter 8 of Joshua. So if you've got Bibles, you've got it on your phone or a paper copy, I should have put it on a presentation, but my laptop was stolen. That's my excuse. So there we go. Um, which is a good reason to think about forgiveness, right? So Joshua 8, and we'll go to verse 30, and we'll just read five verses of this, and then we'll think a little bit here about what, where is God in your life? Is God at the centre? says, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. An altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offering and sacrifice fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. So this passage asks us that very big question, really. Asks us the big question, where is God in your life? And we make it a little bit individualistic when we think about that. And, but God is asking that to the whole nation of Israel, the whole people, like collectively, where is God 
in your decision-making, in, in your uh, hopes and dreams and all of those things, where is God? And it's a question that should make you uncomfortable. When I think about it, it makes me uncomfortable. That generally, okay, where is God in my life? In all of my things that I've got going on, all of my hopes, any dreams that I've got about how life is going to work out, all of the fears that I might have, any failures that I'm working through, any insecurities that I might have, maybe even the priorities that I've set for myself. Where is God's in my life? And the answer may not be one that makes you feel very comfortable. But this story shows actually a little bit of God saying, look, this is how you can put me at the centre, by worship and by word and by presence. We see all three of those things here. It shows God at the centre of all of those things. Well, let's look at that, how, how God puts himself at the centre and how worship is at the centre. And it starts with a few relatively unusual instructions that they have to process. So Joshua is remembering or reading out Moses' instructions. And remember, Moses is now dead. All of the previous generation are now dead. This is a, a new generation who are in Israel. And it is recorded, and actually, if you were to read in Deuteronomy, uh, you would see these instructions in there. And those instructions are, build this altar, okay? Build it when you get there in this place, on these two mountains, and build it of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Okay, it's a pretty slightly odd instruction. Why, why is that? Uh, Moses also says, again, this is in Deuteronomy, there's more detail in that passage than there is in this one, but also says, put up some massive big stones as well, uh, cover them in plaster, and then write the law of God on these stones. Okay, so build this altar, put up these big stones. Now, to the modern mind, like years later, thousands of years later, this feels like a relatively unusual request, doesn't it? You think, well, if I'm having a quiet time in the mornings, do I need to put up a pile of stones? What do I do? Do I need to paint on some stones? What's going on? This feels quite odd. And actually, Western spirituality, thousands of years later, is not really very physical. We've often removed the kind of tactile nature of uh, spirituality from th these things. We tend to view it as a relatively internal thing about how I feel and my relationship with God in terms of my identity and who I am. And that's all kind of in the centre of who we are. And is, other people don't really get to push in on it very much. It's quite individualistic, isn't it? And there is not much kind of physical activity to it. So people would quite happily say, yeah, I believe in God, I, I'm a Christian, but never physically do anything about it. They might never go to church or they might never go and read and pray. They might never help the poor. They might never do all of those things and yet could comfortably say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe that, all that stuff. But actually God here is putting in some instructions. Build these, this altar, put up these stones. And essentially, these instructions are quite important. And why are they? And the first instruct, part of the instruction seems a bit odd. It says, use uncut stones. And why is that? Why does it matter whether the altar is made of rough stones that they just find lying around in a field or stones that somebody has cut into bits so that they all fit together properly? And surely you think, well, okay, if you're going to build an altar, you probably cut them a bit so it, you know, will stand up for longer. It, maybe it will look a little bit nicer as well than one that is just made up of a bunch of stones. What's going on here? Well, humans have a habit of making gods for themselves, right? And when we make gods for ourselves, 
we tend to make them in the image that we quite like. So we tend to make gods that we think, actually, you know what, I could worship that god because I've made it, and I've made it in the way that I would like it to look like. So using a a pile of stones that they have found lying around is a little bit symbolic. Saying, actually, you don't get to make this god yourself means they wouldn't be tempted to build a beautiful altar. And then eventually they start, the altar becomes a bigger deal to them than God's himself, becomes more important to them. And actually, you might think about this in in Christianity. And even in Britain, we have some incredible cathedrals and churches that look amazing. I mean, me and Vicky went to York Minster like about a year ago. York Minster is insane. It's an incredible thing. The fact they built it like a thousand years ago and it's massive and awe-inspiring. It's an incredible thing. But I'm there looking at the beauty of the building and perhaps not thinking about gods. They become monuments to themselves. And actually, we can sometimes build our gods a bit like that, right? We tend to make God into the image we prefer. And how often do you hear somebody might say, well, my God wouldn't behave like that? You often hear people would say that. If there's something difficult that they read in the Bible, they might think, well, my God wouldn't behave like that. And you're like, what do you mean, your God? I don't think you get to possess him in that way. And actually, it can work in other ways. We make the God in the image we prefer. Well, that God could be our own self-sufficiency, couldn't it? Actually, my own ability to look after myself and support myself Uh, and even emotionally just be a a healthy entity, that is my God. I I worship that. That's the thing that is going to save me, right? That's the thing that's going to set me right. Or it could be uh, your finances. You think, okay, if I've got this much money, then I will feel safe, I'll feel secure in the world, uh, and almost it saves me a little bit. I'm not in trouble then because these things, and that's the God that you make in the image you want. Or it could be relationships, I need this relationship, I've got this relationship. If I, if I don't have this one, then my life begins to fall to pieces. It becomes a little bit the God that saves you. You make it in the image you want it to be. And actually, if we make someone we're in a relationship, the God that saves us, that's an incredible burden to put on a person, isn't it? And doesn't usually end up working very well. We can give our lives to these things. Actually, you end up worshipping them. You, you put yourself to those things, but they don't save you. They don't actually do what the living God does. It doesn't restore you, doesn't put you back together, doesn't actually provide you with forgiveness. Those things can't forgive you. They can just uh, kind of crack the whip over you and drive you harder. They don't forgive you. They don't help you to become forgivers as well. We cannot build our gods. We should not build our gods because they are always insufficient when we build them. In Ephesians The Apostle Paul, he wrote to one of the churches uh, and he said, look, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and that is not from yourself. You can't build this yourself. You can't make your own gods. It is the gift of God to you, not by works so that no one can boast. And I wonder if when God said, look, build this altar out of uncut stones, he was thinking, I don't want them to be boasting about how amazing this altar is. I want them to be boasting in me, the living God. I don't want them to be obsessed with this thing that they made with their hands. And it's an important place to start when considering forgiveness, okay? Because there's a call as followers of Jesus to be forgiving and to forgive like Jesus forgives, which is incredibly sacrificial and very costly. 
There's also a call to long for justice and for mercy. In a, again, in a way that is sacrificial and costly. And the beginning point of all of that is to look at the God that you worship. Is it one that you have made? Is it one from cut stones that you've made to be right for you? Or is it the living God who comes to us in the form that he wants to, who speaks, who calls us to worship? Or is it a God of our own imagination? So that worship is at the centre. That's what God calls Israel to. Worship me in the way that I am, not in the way that you want me to be. And then there is the word at the centre as well. So it's fascinating. A sign of God being at the centre of their life and their community and them as people really is reflected in what they read and what they listen to. It's really interesting. In this passage, we see the word is read to them. So the, what Moses had written down, the law and instruction, which they viewed as kind of the word of God, is remembered and read over them and remembered and then implemented The word is then written down all over again. So these big stones, it's uh, Joshua writes it so that the people of God can see it written and perhaps some of them can go and actually read it as well. And then the word is read aloud to all of the people that they stood there. And it happens a few times in the Old Testament that the people gather and a huge amount of scripture is read aloud to them. And it's a very big moment of devotion to God, actually, a very big moment of worship to God, a very big moment of putting God right at the, at the centre. The word is read, is written down, and then it's read all over again. And there are a couple of things I want us to notice here. Well, first one is this is massively inconvenient. Okay, just let's let that sit with you for a moment. It massively inconvenient. They've walked up a mountain, okay, to be there. Now, this is such a pain. And this may not sound very motivational. You might be thinking, you should be kind of winning me over to this a little bit more, Tim. But they went through a lot of hassle to do all of this. Getting everyone together, the whole nation together, uh, at the foot of two very specific mountains. They couldn't get the wrong ones. Then they had to build this altar in a certain way, put up these big stones in a certain way, then write on these big stones, then read it all aloud with everyone listening This isn't them kind of wondering on the bus whether they should read their kind of app, Bible app, for a couple of minutes. Uh, This is a huge, huge event. They organised themselves around the the written words. They organised themselves around the words being read. And again, it's worth just kind of considering that a little bit. And as you think about how you read the Bible, about how you interact with the words... It's meant to be a bit inconvenient, okay? I'll put you think, Tim, you've got to inspire me here. It is meant to break into your life and slightly break your life a little bit. It's meant to actually have that impact on us as a community, but on you as individuals as well. We are meant to stop, listen, and read in ways that are disruptive. It should, it should be as inconvenient as having to write, I need to go to a mountain, I need to go to this specific place and time. A sense of actually this is practically disruptive to me. I need to stop doing other things to fit this into my life. It can't be the thing I put in last if I've got a few minutes. Oh, maybe I'll think about doing then. It is meant to be disruptive to your diary and to your whole life. So it's inconvenient but, and it's also submissive. It's highly submissive, this. Joshua and Israel do their very best to implement the word as they see it. 
written. They do their very best to practically live out the instruction that they see there, to understand it and do as it says. And this obedience God was calling to them was a lifelong pursuit. It wasn't just build the altar and put these stones up, okay, and then they're done and they can behave and do exactly as they want forevermore. Actually, this is a lifelong pursuit of reading, understanding, and obeying. I could make you a little promise now, actually, CCM. If you allow your Bible reading to disrupt your diary, okay, if you allow it to slightly break your sleep patterns, your eating patterns, your, uh, the time that you give to travel to work, whatever it might be, if you allow it to disrupt your diary, it will then begin to disrupt your whole life. It will begin to work its way into you. Because the word of God, the written word of God, is, is hugely powerful. And it's a very powerful idea as well. Now, I really like reading. At the moment, I'm in the habit of reading science fiction. I find it pretty relaxing. I find it quite stimulating and interesting. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes unintentionally funny. But I just, I like reading it. And it's good for me. It's relaxing, all of those things. But it is just words on paper or words on Kindle. It's just written word. It's nothing more than that. But the written word of the Bible or, or, or of God's, is a very different thing. As they were listening and reading, the word of God is spoken over them. Words that are soaked in the Holy Spirit. Words that have power that actually is quite hard for us to understand until we allow it to disrupt our diaries and our lives. So I challenge you a bit this morning to put the uncut stone, put God as he presents himself to us, into the centre of your life by reading, by listening. Some of you actually just like audio Bible is is the greatest invention ever. Find ways to allow yourself to listen to the audio Bible. For some of us, I quite like in the morning just sitting and reading for a bit. And I will sometimes read big chunks and sometimes I'll read just little bits uh, and it depends on what's going on with me at the moment. But actually, I, I have to build it in early in the morning for me just because of how life is. Um, but it does mean getting up early. It does mean disrupting of life. And that works for me. Vicky as well. She uh, leaves the house at seven in the morning and often gets up like an hour and a half before that so that she can have some time on her own to pray and read the Bible. It is an inconvenience. It is a, uh, a difficulty. It is a hassle. But she loves it because it's so good for her. Actually, she loves the powerful written word of God that speaks to her. Allow it to inconvenience you. Reorganise your life to read it. Then allow God to reorganise who you are by what you read. And then finally, we, we've, we've seen worship at the centre, word at the centre. And then we see the presence of God's. At the centre, the presence of God was with them as they stood on these two mountains, uh, as they're watching this altar being built and these stones go up, and they're listening to the word of God being spoken at them. The presence of God was with them. It talks about the Ark of the Covenant being there, and the Ark of the Covenant is was a, an object that represented the presence of God. In the Ark was the the tablets of stone, the law that they thought God had given to Moses, uh, and they're in there, but it also it had a power in of itself in that God was present there. 
And when the Ark of the Covenant is there, you're meant to think, okay, this isn't a lifeless ritual. It's not just religious behavior. It's not them being a bit weird or a bit artistic. Actually, it was God's being there with them. Actually, as you read the passage, the Ark comes after the altar and the stones. So you're meant to think, actually, the presence of God here is more important than the altar that's been built and the stones that have been put up. The presence of God was there with them. And even as it describes the, almost the seating arrangements, talks about all of the, the priests and the leaders of Israel being stood around this thing on either sides. The presence of God was right in the middle of them. And it's important to note this because remember the recent behaviour of Israel. They had not consulted God's they had kind of ignored him a little bit. They uh, thought that they knew better. Some of them had actively disobeyed in kind of beginning to hoard wealth for themselves. They were a broken group of people, as all groups of people are broken. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? We are a broken group of people, perhaps in similar ways to, to them. Self-centered, maybe, a bit egotistical, perhaps, maybe a little bit greedy, maybe a little bit lazy, maybe forgetting God, whatever it might be. And yet God is still present with them right in the middle. He's holy and perfect, so he is still there, though. That's an interesting thing to think about when we think about forgiveness, perhaps even of asking for our own forgiveness. In this crazy, ridiculous, broken group of people The presence of God was right in the middle of them. He wasn't scared of them. He wasn't offended by them. He didn't want to just cast them away. At that moment, he was right in the middle of them. And I want us to think hard about these things over the next few weeks. I want us to think about how we are forgiven. How does that even happen and what that means for us? It's easy to kind of conceptually say, yeah, God forgives me. Jesus forgives me, but how does that work and what does that mean for us? So think then from that point, how do we actually then apply that to others? How do we forgive? And we must start with this question, where is God in your life? I want that question to kind of float around your minds just as the week goes. Perhaps if you remember or in community group or uh, perhaps if we're hanging out afterwards or at any point or maybe just write it down. Where is God in my life? Just to think about, is he right on the edge? Is he in the centre? Has he formally been in the centre and I've pushed him out? Have I never invited him in? Think about those things. Thanks for listening. Christchurch Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.